This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Will Wynn. Hi Will, how are you? I'm good, how are you Duncan? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We're just sort of gradually trying to get back to life as normal here in the UK. I don't know what the situation is where you are in the States, but we're sort of still at the tail end, well hopefully the tail end of this pandemic situation and kind of you know, just just touching wood and hoping that we're kind of out of the worst of it. Yeah, same here. I think it's uh, it's. I think we reach the area of pandemic fatigue for me. Speak, you know, personally speaking, with all all the Zoom calls and, and remote calls, but at the same time, you know, kind of waiting and seeing as well to see uh, how all of this uh, shakes out and pans out. I think we can actually allude to some of of what's happening right now in our conversation later on in terms of how a planned economy instead of a capitalist economy is the one that is best equipped to handle a pandemic is to mm-hmm. make sure everyone stays at home. Everyone's is paid to stay at home. Uh, no one is forced to go to work because they have to earn a paycheck. And there's actually cooperation between nation states because nation states wouldn't exist anymore on a vaccine. There'd be no competition between an American vaccine, a Chinese vaccine, Russian vaccine. It'd be humans working on a vaccine together and the vaccine be free for everyone immediately. But I think we can get into all that later. But I think it is very much um, on everyone's mind right now. Absolutely. Well, I mean, as well as the many other aspects of life that the pandemic has shone a light on, I suppose some of these kind of economic, political economic questions do come and, and kind of business questions, I suppose, do come to the fore. I mean, we've had over here in the UK quite extraordinarily, I think, in some ways, a conservative government being forced to bring in policies that you know, a Labour government, a left-wing government would have struggled to ever uh, get through in terms of the, you know, the kind of handouts that have been given to people. I mean, I've been living on, you know, partly on self-employment handouts. Other people have been, you know, there've been these arrangements with businesses and so on. But at the same time, there are these big questions. When all these things come to an end, if life hasn't got back to normal, people have not yet for the most part, lost their jobs. But as soon as the schemes that are supporting the companies to uh, furlough those people come to an end, is there just going to be a massive wave of unemployment? So all these kind of questions, I mean, it's interesting, we're, we're going to talk a little bit today about the DS9 episode, Bar Association. And really what kicks off the drama in that episode is 
not something as grand as a pandemic. On a much smaller level, there's a, a religious festival for the Bajorans, which means that fewer Bajorans are drinking in quarks. Not that it seems to me quarks clientele is particularly heavy on Bajorans, but anyway, apparently this is ruining business for him. And as a result, he decides to effectively uh, kind of move the loss onto his employees by telling them they're going to suffer a pay cut or he's going to uh, sack a load of them. Very much, you, you know, these are the kind of questions that I suppose people in business are kind of trying to work out you know, around the world at the moment when they're facing these difficult situations. And then, of course, the question comes up, well, what's, is that fair? You, you know, and Rom is saying, and frankly, all the employees at Quarks are saying, this is not right, this is not fair. You know, we want a better solution uh, that kind of respects the rights of workers as well as the interests of business. And I guess what we've seen with the pandemic, I mean, a lot of people have been very critical I don't know about in the States, but certainly over here, about decisions that have been taken that seem to be in the interests of kind of protecting businesses rather than necessarily totally in line with what's best for public health. So the kind of businesses that open before others, there seem to be decisions that are being made. There's now a kind of move here to say, well, maybe people should be going back into the office some of the time. And actually, it seems that may be more about they want you to go and buy your lunch in Pret rather than that you necessarily need to be with your co-workers because the working from home is going fine. So there's all these kind of decisions that are going on. Um, and, you know, they must be tough decisions for those in charge and those in government and so on because they don't want all the businesses to close and those people to lose their jobs that way and so on. But kind of balancing the rights and wrongs and the, the responsibility towards the people you know, trying to make a profit is it, these are tricky areas, and I suppose this is an episode that absolutely shines a light on that. Uh, I absolutely agree, and I think uh, this is uh, one of the greatest uh, Star Trek episodes. Period, not just Deep Space Nine. Uh, it really fires on all cylinders uh, because uh, it really approaches this question not in a heavy-handed way, but in a very effective way. Uh, and they we have yet to see it handled like this in any other Star Trek episode to date. And the union question is a class struggle question. And uh, I think the best way to answer kind of what your question, Duncan, is uh, balancing, quote unquote, um, the, the public health and then versus kind of the, the business needs, the profit motive, if you will. That contradiction is, in fact, uh, my view, I'm a Marxist, my view is that's the crisis of capitalism. It cannot actually resolve that contradiction. It's a massive contradiction. It's because those contradictions exist, which is why capitalism is in such a crisis worldwide. Every ruling class government is in that crisis right now because they're, they're, that's what the government uh, represents. It represents the interests of of uh, the ruling class and the ruling class of the capitalists. Now, that's a very Marxist, very Leninist perspective of, of government. I know it's not everyone subscribes to that belief, that they believe that the government is by and for the people. We say that here in the United States a lot. But as a Marxist, you know, reading, and I'm going to quote some theory here, Lenin's State and Revolution, he understood that state in its final analysis is just the armed bodies of men to protect the ruling class interests. Or the armed bodies of men? It's the police and the military, at the end of the day. When there are protests, and have you seen the huge protests regarding Black Lives Matters in London that spread from Minneapolis worldwide because the problem of, of Black Lives, the problem of policing is actually a world problem. And it, it cuts right to the point of what uh, a government represents and whose interests it serves. So in order to balance it out, um, the, my perspective is it can't be balanced out. And that's why I can't resolve those contradictions when you hear they say 
stay at home, be safe, we're all in this together. That was initially at the very start of the pandemic, around March and April. And then about four or five months in, it's like, well, got to go back to work. And mm -hmm. that contradiction, that very mixed message leads people to take everything at a grain of salt. They don't, they don't know who to trust anymore. You're saying it's dangerous and it's a pandemic and you stay home. And yet I need to go back to work because I got to pay the rent. I got to pay my bills, that kind of stuff. Is it safe or is it not safe? You know, people going to bars, not going to bars. So it leads to, in reality, not just a, a contradiction, but a crisis in confidence in the government, right? Because they themselves can't figure out a solution, right? And uh, I think that's kind of the, the, the biggest radicalization and the biggest polarizing thing that's happening to lots of people. It's happening in real time, and no one really has an answer to it, and it's happening on a global scale. It's not just like a one-time event, like a wildfire or an earthquake, um, but it's continuing indefinitely. And um, you use the Quark example. Uh, it's, a, it's a great example about how what's the best way to tackle this problem? Um, I would say in Bar Association, Rom understood that there's power and solidarity with others, right? There's power in a union. There's power in collective action. And I would say the same is true in the pandemic, if not more so. Uh, it shows you the weakness of capitalism that within about 10 days of consumer activity pretty much flatlining, the economy was in a free fall. It shows you who creates and produces all the wealth in society. Is it the bosses or is it actually the workers who go to the work every single day who buy and consume and propel the economy? Are they the ones that actually run the economy? And if they run the economy, then how come they don't make the decisions in society? So that poses the ultimate question that the capitalists don't want you to answer, saying, well, you make everything run, but you actually have no say in this, and that we're actually going to use you as cannon fodder, to, to borrow Picard's line nemesis, to restart the economy, to restart our profits. So I need to pay my bills, the landlords need to pay their mortgages to the banks and stuff, and their loans to the bank, so we need to send you back. And that is the central uh, contradiction that can't be resolved within the framework of capitalism, I think. So that's why I think it poses so many interesting questions uh, of how Star Trek, Starfleet would have just been, we're going to make sure everyone stays at home. We're going to replicate everyone a food, a blanket, water, vaccine. We're going to give everyone, you know, personal force fields or what have you, right? We won't pay you. A, we won't charge you a copay. We won't charge you anything for it. And uh, we're going to put our best minds, the best minds of the Federation on this. But in real life, it's 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 all competition. It's 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 one company trying to beat another company to, to earn the patent rights, to earn the, uh, the intellectual property rights to sell it at a profit. Uh, it's just uh, sending people in without no PPE themselves. It's, it's the exact opposite of what you would think Captain Sisko or Captain Picard or any of the captains would actually do in Star Trek. It's interesting when you were saying there was that rhetoric at the start of the pandemic about all being in it together. And of course, the union is a, a, a kind of... Um, manifestation of that idea in a sense it is you know it's about collective action it's about having collective interests and i suppose certainly over here one of the things that i think has changed during the course of this period that we've been living through is actually to begin with people were quite willing to go along with the assumption that the government was to some degree trustworthy that they were acting out of the right interests and so on and that there was a sense i suppose of kind of collective response in that instance responsibility you know doing the right thing protecting each other uh, there was all this rhetoric around protecting the nhs and so on and then i think what happened is gradually bit by bit there have been sort of hints that actually there maybe is a bit more of a kind of 
us and them element to it. There do seem to be one set of rules for one group of people. So over here, we had this big scandal when the Prime Minister's closest advisor basically flagrantly broke all the rules, lied about it in the most absurd fashion on live TV, and then just basically got away with it. And so I think for a lot of people, that was a moment of, well, hang on, we're clearly not in this together, because they think that they're, they can follow different rules to the rest of us. And I suppose there's that element there of that kind of trust, that the trust that is holding, not necessarily holding society together, but to, to an extent in that situation is holding everyone together in this quite difficult enterprise, just breaks. And once that breaks, immediately within days, you see people not following the social distancing, you see people resisting the rules that are being imposed, you see people kind of... Um, this sort of bloody mindedness comes out as people think, well, you know, why should I do what I've been told? Because uh, it's almost like it's like some sort of game theory or something, you know, if not everyone else is doing it, but particularly if the people telling me what to do are not doing it, that kind of trust breaks down. So I suppose there is an interesting element in terms of like kind of class consciousness and these sort of political issues here that the pandemic can be quite an eye-opening experience. Just as I suppose for Rom, who starts off Bar Association as a kind of loyal Ferengi and ends up uh, quoting Marx, you, you know, he's, he goes on a pretty uh, rapid uh, process of kind of whatever you want to call it, enlightenment or kind of, uh, you know, broadening his horizons or whatever that, that starts with this kind of very uh, offhand remark that Bashir makes saying, oh, you know, why don't you form a union? Now, you can't help thinking that the Federation probably haven't needed I mean, I don't know what, you know, maybe there, maybe there are Starfleet unions. I suppose they probably do have systems for like feeding back um, through that command structure. But I mean, a military structure is very different, I suppose, to a business structure, to a political structure and so on. But Bashir just says sort of very cavalierly, oh, you need a union. Um, and then you've got O'Brien kind of chipping in with his kind of... Uh, proper, you know, union credentials of his ancestor who ended up being murdered in wherever, Pittsburgh or somewhere, I think. Um, for... He was more than a hero. He was a union yeah, man. Exactly. He was a union man. So there's this kind of... It, it interests me as well, because I don't know whether in the States, I think certainly the entertainment unions are quite strong, as I understand it, compared to ours here. I mean, we used to have an actors... Uh, we do still have an actors union here, Equity, but they used to have a lot more clout than they do now there used to be a kind of closed shop you needed an equity card you couldn't work without it and so on now all of that's gone out the window so the union is kind of massively uh sort of less powerful but my sense is that in america which you might think of as a, a we, we from a european perspective we might think of as a more sort of capitalist more kind of exploitative economic system but certainly in the entertainment industry, we're always hearing about the writers' unions on strike and there's like no TV coming out or the actors' union is up to, you know, has very strict rules or whatever. And I was reading up on this episode, ironically, Armin Shimmerman at the time they were making this episode was uh, on the board of directors or on the board basically of the Screen Actors Guild. So it was a kind of high up union uh, member in a sense um, or a union representative while he's, you know, playing the sort of capitalist trying to break the union basically. So it kind of struck me is that there's an interesting element there of not just the politics of America playing out in this story, but also that coming from that particular sort of Hollywood mindset and what that represents to those writers, actors, directors, you know, everyone involved in creating entertainment, creating Star Trek and what that kind of um, brings to their take on those kind of stories. No, it's absolutely. I think uh, the the entertainment industry has had, uh, you know, uh, a strong history of labor organizing. Uh, a lot of the McCarthyite Red Scare came from 
the the entertainment industry right they had to weed out the reds right they are the and, and there were people you know early on in the 50s that pointed fingers right among communist members communist sympathizers but there is a strong history a strong tradition of solidarity and labor struggle uh wallace sean who plays uh grand negus zek is a is a socialist in real life you know he's very mm-hmm. unvocal about his politics ironic right he plays the grand negus but in real life you know he's a political activist and sitting with armin as well uh i would say i don't know if he's a socialist but he's very politically active and i think the unions, I think, is uh, a great example of um, it's the it's the start of consciousness and it's a great incubator of consciousness. But again, to kind of quote um, uh, Lenin in his uh, in left wing communism, he talks about unions being uh, uh, an important first school of communism, but it's not it's not the last. It's not the last part of class consciousness, but it's an essential gain by the workers because the unions, in and of itself, is a is a is a gain by the workers to extract concessions in capitalism. It is a way for them to organize themselves to extract better benefits from capitalists. But at the same time, they can't control their actual exploitation in general. They can only control their rate of exploitation, meaning I want a little bit higher wages, better hours, better benefits. But they actually don't control the actual running of a business or the running of society, which is how unions in itself is really a starting point for Again, not to get too heavily into kind of Marxist politics, but the beginning towards uh, workers' Soviets, Soviets being the Russian worker councils, workers' councils, where the workers themselves run a factory themselves, they run a workplace themselves, they elect their bosses, and they can recall their bosses at any time, and their bosses uh, don't make more than the average wage of the average worker. That's what Lenin and Trotsky were talking about when we were talking about Soviet power, early Soviet Union, was the idea of workers' democracy in action, where they can control society through how they control their workplace because the workplace is how socialized production takes place and how actually uh, real workers' checks and balances can happen is that um, you can actually run society that way because workers already run society. They know how to produce goods and services. They just actually don't get all the benefits of the, the wealth they create. They actually don't call the shots. Um, but unions, they play an important role, but they actually don't play that, that next role, that Soviet role. And it's because they still have to negotiate with management, right? Just like in uh, Bar Association, Rom still has to negotiate with Quark because, you know, he's still, quote unquote, the boss because Quark still owns the means of Quark's bar, right? Mm-hmm. So the next question is, what if the workers of Quark's bar, they ran, what if they actually elected who's going to actually run the bar? What if they elected a Quark? And if Quark doesn't pass muster, they can recall Quark at any time, right? Or that kind of stuff. That's the next question that's posed. It's not directly answered at all in the episode but i think it's one of those things where you can you can use star trek as a great launching point to talk about these ideas and i think you talked about um how does this reflect itself in the command structure of starfleet i mean that is a great question uh one could say you know they never really talk about that like you know it seems pretty hierarchical the class structure in starfleet how does that reconcile with a post-scarcity some say socialist uh or communist government how that how does that square I think it all poses really good questions. I don't know if you've seen Lower Decks yet, Duncan, but mm. uh, there is that great tension between Mariner and Freeman. This last episode, um, Boimler was talking about, hey, the senior officers get better replicators. You can get macaroni yeah. with the bread crumbles on top, which brings up the question, why do the elite officers get you know, special uh, privileges, right? It doesn't seem as egalitarian as it is. And what if the Lower Decks, who the very first episode... Mariner was saying, we do all the work, they take all the glory, right? 
what if the lower decks were the ones that were able to elect their leadership, right? Based mm-hmm. off of uh, and recall the, their senior staff uh, if they weren't, you know, passing passing muster. And there is precedent for this. The old uh, there were some pirate ships of, of of old where the crew would elect their captains based off the skill and ability of the captains, right? So it's not a completely um, Marxist idea per se. It has precedent in previous history, but it is interesting to see that Starfleet, as we see it now, does replicate a lot of the bourgeois navies, like the, the UK Navy, right? The US Navy, USS this, that kind of stuff. But does it truly represent an egalitarian sense when you can still have, you know, captains or commanders bossing people around? The ensigns, you know, they sleep on walls now, right? They have bunk beds and walls, and they have, mm-hmm. they have less uh, replicator uh, privileges. So it is. Um, it's an interesting starting point to talk about these ideas, which is why I love Star Trek, uh, is that it's a jumping point to talk about very real-life applications of kind of politics and economics. And it's interesting with Lower Decks, I suppose, you do have... You're right, there is almost a kind of class... It's not exactly a class struggle, but there, there, there are two, there's a hierarchy. And it's not just that there's a hierarchy, as in this: everyone outranks someone and is outranked by someone else. It's like there, there's very much an us and them feel to it, which I guess you got to some extent in the TNG episode Lower Decks. But I feel like in the cartoon, it's much more partly because it's pushing the comedy and it's pushing the kind of... Partly well, we're seeing it from the Lower Decks perspective. So we see the kind of bridge crew as slightly ridiculous... Uh, in a way that they couldn't quite do in the next gen episode when they're you know there it's like we're just focusing on people that are normally sort of in the background doing the jobs whereas here there is more resentment i suppose there is more tension between them um and it'll be interesting to see you know going forward they could have a situation where i mean what happens if the lower decks go on strike uh (laughs) you know do they all get thrown in the brig i mean you know they do at some point they do need to sort of be kept reasonably happy. I guess Janeway sort of had this to some degree in the Delta Quadrant, uh, partly with the Marquis, but just with the crew generally. This slight question of, you know, why should we still follow this person's orders? You know, our kind of, the broader hierarchy that we're that we're kind of signed up to is not relevant here, doesn't exist here. It makes it more precarious for that captain. I mean, my guess is it would be hard to find, obviously a pirate ship is like a, that's one that's almost it is almost like a bus- a sort of floating business of sorts isn't it it's not uh part of a navy from a nation i, mean, I don't know whether it, it would work for a, a nation to have that system because I, I don't know maybe that's just the limitation of my imagination but it does seem like a military organization is is very top down and is that's the kind of um way those things are always run if, if you know if you do have a navy with like thousands of ships or whatever but i mean as i say who knows it'd be interesting to see i don't know whether star trek's ever given us an example of you know another alien race where that's the model that they employ but it would definitely be quite an interesting one i think when we talk about the ferengi it's interesting because of course there's this weird contradiction in this episode that this is this is star trek literally quoting Marx and doing an episode about labor disputes and so on they can only do that there's this kind of weird thing like you you might say star trek is past all that you know we we could argue whether star trek is a sort of marxist or a communist or a socialist vision of the future or, or, or you know what the economics of the federation are but deep space nine can only do this because they've kind of broken that anyway insofar as there's this like sort of utopian idea particularly in next gen ds9 has come in and said uh well we've got sort of grubby capitalism going on here and you know people trying to make a buck and exploiting people and so on and you even have rom at the beginning of the episode has this great line where he says um 
we don't want to end exploitation. We want to be the ones exploiting others. That's the kind of goal. And that, and that is the kind of trap which we've seen, you know, certainly here in the UK over uh, kind of, was that, you know, over my lifetime anyway, I think that, you know, there has been in the sort of latter part of the 20th century, there was a kind of shift towards this idea uh, quite successfully from the point of view of the right to make people think, oh, if I, r- rather than having this sort of class consciousness and thinking, oh, so you, you know, my interests are not being respected as much as someone else, to feel more like I can get to that person's position, that that's the goal. The goal is, you know, to own my own home, to have the power, to have the business, to do all this sort of thing, rather than to... So to sort of always imagine yourself out of the situation you're in, in such a way that you don't advocate for those in the in a similar situation. And it kind of breaks that... Um, that sort of awareness. And I guess that, you know, Rom is kind of perfectly encapsulating that there. Of course, he goes, he sort of goes beyond it. You know, he he gradually starts reading up. He, you know, he becomes, from being slightly hesitant at the beginning, he becomes this very diehard union guy who, you know, is willing to take, you know, take a phaser shot or whatever it is. He's, he's willing to put his life on the line. Uh, he's willing even really to put his brother's life on the line because they think that by going after Quark, that will break Rom. Uh, and it doesn't. He sort of says, sorry, you know, I'm I'm sticking to my guns. But I mean, these are tough. These are tough situations. And obviously, in the history of labour disputes, you know, even uh, in more recent times, I'm working on a book at the moment about uh, sugar factory workers in Liverpool and they uh, they worked in this sugar factory, which for various reasons ended up being closed in the early 1980s. And there was a long sort of sustained campaign to try to keep it open. Um, and, and many of the people I spoke to were, you know, were involved in, in that and involved with the union and so on. And ultimately they didn't succeed. But, you know, people do make big sacrifices uh, in situations like that. You know, people were really struggling. Other um someone I spoke to who wasn't working at that factory was working on the docks. The dockers were on strike for a long period of time and they were, you know, it was really took a toll on them, which I think we don't really see. We don't so much see that in bar association. We see the threat of violence, but other than that, it's not like they're all going to be evicted from the station because they can't pay their rent because it's slightly, un- I mean, you know, who are they paying that to anyway? I mean, Quark's making money, but the Federation presumably is not making money. I don't know, maybe the Bajorans are making money off the station. Who knows? We do, I suppose one of the things about Star Trek is we don't generally get into the nitty gritty of all that. And that's why there is this sort of sense of does the economics of the Star Trek universe really make any kind of sense? Or is it just a bit of a hodgepodge that shifts slightly depending on the story they want to tell, you know, this particular week? Yeah. So uh, on, on your point about uh, is the Federation profiting from it? And, and, and you're exactly right about how there's only the threat of kind of sending in the Pinkertons, only the threat of sending in, you know, the police or the military to break up a strike. And that's true because it's, it's, it's a 45 minute episode. They have to wrap things up, but there is a key piece. I remember of, of negotiation that happened between Cisco and Quark and, and Cisco's all like, Quark, if you don't end this, I can start actually you know, charging you rent. And it, and he kind of itemizes it for Quark, sends it to Quark. Quark's like, oh my goodness, we gotta, we gotta make a deal. And that's really what's pushing him at the end to kind of make the deal with Rom. But it poses a very interesting nugget of a question saying, so the Federation chooses not to be, I would imagine how I read it, they choose not to be a landlord. They choose not mm-hmm. to be a landlord to Quark, which is how Quark, I would imagine, is able to at least extract some sort of profit because he doesn't have to pay um, the Federation for, uh, or the Bajorans, I would imagine, 
for the space, for the energy usage uh, of being on the station, right? So anything else he gets um, from his workers at Quarks, I guess he could keep as profit or, you know, gold press Latin and what have you. I think that's very interesting that one of the few references of perhaps Federation abolishing landlordism, although it never talks about landlordism, but you're right, it doesn't talk about rent, doesn't talk about premium co-pays, at least in the United States with health ins- private health insurance. They don't talk about uh, charging for all these types of things. They just provided and given for. I think this is actually a perfect explanation to kind of what you're asking is, is the Star Trek economic, socio-political economic system fully flushed out and does it make sense? And I think in a lot of ways, uh, it's not because it, it is a hodgepodge. It is something that, uh, of course, it's it's told primarily from the perspective of a Starship crew. The Deep Space Nine uh, setting in and of itself is an anomaly, but primarily it's about a station crew that, that follows very strict uh, bourgeois, naval, chain of command, hierarchy, but just a more enlightened form of that. Everything else around that, the fact that there's a one-world government, that there's no money, although there's sometimes instances of money, uh, there's no poverty, no war, it's it's kind of all, uh, I wouldn't say added on after the fact, but it's it, it plays a more of a secondary role to the fact that we're going to go explore, explore strange new worlds and, and use that as the vessel to explain. We rarely see the Federation Council. We rarely see the president. We rarely see the judiciary system. Civilian life outside of very few fleeting references of Joseph Sisko or Harry Kim's apartment or the chateau that Picard has, very uh, fleeting instances. And I think that's just because Star Trek in and of itself is a, is a 50-year-old franchise that has, has changed quite a lot. Um, has been able to absorb a lot of those changes from many different writers, many different teams. But at, at its core, I think it is uh, just a mix of these ideas. Primarily pushed by Roddenberry, I think the most radical politics that Trek ever had was in the early TNG era, season one and two, when he really had the opportunity to push uh, that, that um, you know, new human perspective that we're, we're beyond, uh, we're post-scarcity, we're beyond kind of a 20th century humans were. Um, and elements of Deep Space Nine with the anti-imperialist liberation struggle, quoting the Communist Manifesto in one episode, all those types of things. Very, uh, as radical as Trek kind of gets. Um, but it's never fully fleshed out because I think uh, we often talk about Star Trek as a utopia, a very utopian vision. And I think it's a very correct and accurate term. And I say that because I'm referring specifically to a book written by Friedrich Engels, Marx's partner. Uh, he wrote Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific which is a great book that explains the different strands of socialism. There are many types of utopian socialisms, like uh, Robert Owen, who was in the UK, who the idea was, um, you know, if we just create better working conditions uh, from the capitalist stand, if we just are better philanthropists, uh, if we just in- enact better laws, uh, we can, we can kind of get to that better world, better society. Um, and what Engels later was saying with scientific socialism was saying, there is actual class struggle at play in society. It quotes the original Communist Manifesto where he says, the history uh, up to this point uh, in society has been the history of class struggle. There are always these two opposition oppositional classes at play, uh, the working class and the ruling class. And you actually have to, uh, you have to answer that question. Who actually runs society? Uh, it's not a question about being more enlightened or, um, you know, having uh, the best speeches. But I think that's that's within that's within Star Trek's wheelhouse. Star Trek's wheelhouse says if we have the right information, the right people, we can get everyone in a conference room. 
the ready room, the observation lounge, we give a nice speech, and we win people over. Don't get me wrong. I love that about Star Trek. In many ways, that's the best way to resolve many things in, in society and in life and, and personal and, and what have you. But it doesn't actually, that method actually doesn't resolve the deeper societal questions of who's in power and who's not, because power doesn't concede power willingly. Uh, so the idea that, that, that we get to Star Trek because of Zephyr Cochran and, you know, they make contact with the Vulcans and then all of a sudden, because humanity realizes we're not alone in the universe, we solve our problems, that in and of itself is a wonderful utopian vision. But it is a very idealistic vision because it has zero class struggle to it. It doesn't understand mm -hmm. why are people the way that they are? Why are people fighting over scraps? Why, are they, why is private property a thing? What is the ruling class? There are interests at play. And it's not just uh, a question of, you know, uh, walking in each other's shoes or having the right speech or just kind of one day deciding, you know what, we can all work together. And I think that's the, the fundamental limitation of Star Trek. I love Star Trek. But I think that's the fundamental limitation of Star Trek is that it never questions how do you actually get there? And when it does mm -hmm. question how it gets there, it is a very idealistic and utopian vision of saying we can actually convince our enemies. There is not a struggle to be had here. And the only type of Star Trek that approaches that type of question is, in fact, Deep Space Nine with the Bajorans and the Cardassians, the resistance, saying there are certain things you cannot sit down in a conference room and just debate, right? There has to be an active resistance or there has to be an active struggle. In Deep Space Nine, that was a national liberation struggle for Bajor. Uh, for the Federation to exist, it has to be, fundamentally, a class struggle. Because to get to that one world government, uh, it's going to require, and this is my personal opinion, a socialist revolution on Earth to be able to, to make that happen. And it's not possible to achieve a one world government when the ruling class controls government. There's still um, all of those police and military making sure you go to work, that kind of stuff. And um, that's why I think um, Star Trek has actually made me a better, Marxism has made me a better Star Trek fan because I like it for what it is, and I actually don't pretend it's anything further than that. I just use it as a jumping off point to talk about all these types of things. But it is uh, it is a hodgepodge, like you said, but it's a fun hodgepodge to talk about. <laughs> it is, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, as you say, Deep Space Nine is the show that maybe pushes the furthest. In so many ways, I suppose, Deep Space Nine is the show that kind of pushes the boundaries of what Star Trek is and, and sort of uh, maybe not answers those questions, but at least kind of doesn't accept the pat simple answers, the, the, the overly simple answers. I mean, actually, when you're talking about kind of class struggle and these sort of issues, Past Tense would be another good example of an episode that shows, which is very different from the kind of first contact story of, you know, the Vulcans arrived and we all put down our weapons and put down our, you know, credit cards and kind of uh, became better people. Past Tense very much shows two worlds in conflict and you know, something has got to change to resolve that. In a sense, it's, you know, it's got so bad that, that something has, has got to happen. On the other hand, it's such a kind of bleak episode. It doesn't really feel like it's offering much of a blueprint for how to get out of that situation at all. It's kind of, you know, and they, they leave with this kind of sense of, if anything, less understanding than they had when they went into it. Just thinking, God, you know, how, do, how, how does this terrible situation happen? And how do we uh, get away from it? But then, of course, they go back to the 24th century and everything is, you know, is a lot nicer. I think it's interesting in Picard, we see a little bit of this sort of resentment between Raffi and Picard. And there's this emphasis, which we've never seen 
I don't think about Picard's family before as she makes some comment about him with his big fancy chateau. And it does sort of raise this question, okay, well, we thought everyone in Star Trek had it pretty good. Do you know what I mean? Everyone sort of seems to have what they want. I mean, she's got a, you know, she's not living on the street, if you know what I mean, but her her home is very, is, is markedly different from his and they actually draw attention to that in the script. You, you know, she kind of draws attention to it. Uh, and there is this sort of question of, you know, I mean, I don't know it, how much you need, you can kind of fill in the the dots and work out, you know, is, is she living on some kind of, we've had all this discussion recently about universal basic income. Does Rafi get a universal basic income, but Picard still has generations worth going back to, you know, Trafalgar or whenever his ancestors, you know what I mean? This grand family line of maybe not money, but kind of property, expensive wines, <laughs> I don't know, nice furniture. Do you know what I mean? All this kind of stuff that basically has been sort of inherited wealth, I suppose. Um, and Rafi clearly doesn't have any of that. She's sort of got a, a more sort of basic, um, a sort of more basic lifestyle. But I think Michael Shaban basically uh, made a comment when I had Manny Sardia on the show, he, he mentioned this, uh, that he basically his attitude was sort of, oh, all that utopian stuff is rubbish anyway, so I'm not I'm not interested in it. Do you know what I mean? I don't buy it. Don't buy this sort of utopian uh, version of Star Trek, so I'm just doing my own thing and, and therefore, and that's a bit different. And, and I think it, you know, certainly you can see different, you can read different bits of Star Trek in different ways and they do seem to slightly push against each other. But I guess when it comes to DS9 and the Ferengi, it gives them a way out of that box because they don't really have to show... They still don't really have to show the economics of the Federation, except, as you say, they kind of hint at, well, we could be charging you rent, but of course we're not going to. But they bring in the Ferengi as a kind of satire of, you know, 20th century capitalists. And that allows them to kind of do those stories in a very different way. Now, what we don't know, of course, is what happens after the end of DS9, unless Picard is going to answer this question, which I find unlikely, uh, with Grand Nagus Rom, who's been reading Marx and is suddenly the political leader of, <laughs> you know, of the Ferengi. I mean, what what kind of... Because we see sort of social change happening for the Ferengi over the course of DS9, you know, women being allowed to wear clothes or, or whatever it is. Um, we see kind of baby steps towards a less exploitative kind of model for society. But how far is that going to go? You know, are the Ferengi really going to end up where the Federation are or are they going to end up as just slightly slightly less awful capitalists? Or, you know, what, what do we think? Uh, it, I mean, I think it'd be an interesting question. I don't know. It's, I'm sure it's been touched on in the novels. Um, but, you know, what exactly, what on earth is Rom going to do when he gets back to Ferenginar? Uh, and, you know, with this massive responsibility and... Um, his own life experiences and his own beliefs, how is that going to kind of play into it? Yeah. So I think this is one of those instances where, um, so I'm of two minds about this, I think. So to, to kind of, um, to go out the first question, I think when you had Madu on, actually he and I actually follow each other on Twitter. I love his, his Twitter feed and I love his book. Um, I think that is, um, one of, I think the critiques of, of, of uh, the utopian vision of, of Trek, right? So on the one hand, you'll have people say, Hey, you know, it's utopian, and I believe in that, and that's the whole part of Star Trek, right? Why even be a Star Trek fan if you don't believe that we actually have a better society? And on the flip side of that is, well, there are, of course, inconsistencies. There are these contradictions, right? So how do you reconcile the two? Do you just throw everything out with the, the baby with the bathwater if it doesn't completely reconcile itself? And I think this is an instance where, again, you know, if you have, a, uh, for me, a, a political method, uh, it actually helps explain all these contradictions in a way that actually reflects real life. You know, you know the Marxist analysis of, 
what happened to the first worker state in the history of humanity, the Soviet Union, right, is how it became, uh, uh, how it became degenerated and, and, and collapsed, right? How do you explain that from the origins of the October 1917 revolution where they did achieve power, they actually eliminated landlordism, they abolished capitalism, were an inspiration for revolutions throughout the world. How did it actually degenerate to what it did? I think is a perfect example of how, again, personally speaking, you know, not everyone's going to subscribe to this, but I believe, you know, the United Federation of Planets is really uh, a, de a degenerate or a deformed space worker state. It's achieved uh, these massive gains of a planned economy. We don't have to worry about housing and medicine and food in a lot of ways, but there is still a bureaucracy, that Starfleet bureaucracy that emerges, right? There are still is privileges and some, and as you see in Picard, some sort of creeping in of, of, inherited privilege, which, by the way, is one of the most important things that a ruling class wants to bestow upon its children or its descendants is the its own privileges. It wants to bestow that as an inheritance through property or wealth to its next generation. That's what the ruling class does. And I think um, Star Trek, you know, is contradictory all over the place. And I think when I was a younger fan, I wanted these explanations. I wanted to, to, to dig in. And to a certain extent, I still do. I still want to dig into lots of stuff. But I think now, actually, as I've grown older, you know, I kind of actually say, you know what, maybe I prefer it not to be fleshed out because it will inevitably, you know, disappoint me. Because I think it, it is Star Trek. It also exists as an entertainment property. It exists as CBS, Paramount's, you know, m money generating thing. They need to actually, you know, do stuff with it that, you know, is dependent upon, you know, selling subscriptions, selling merchandise, all that kind of stuff. So there's going to be all that contradictions from the the movie making and the tv show making of it and so for me it's uh, i actually kind of uh am glad and i hope they continue like don't flush it out too much let me let me flush it out with my own head canon my own you know i consider it the actual canon and of how the federation looks like outside of starfleet because you know if it is flushed in it's inevitably going to be probably disappointing and you know what's the what's the fun of that the part of uh being a fan for so long is is, is putting in making it fit your jigsaw puzzle kind of reconciling all these types of things but you're exactly right there is there are these instances where you know either kirk in uh voyage home has no idea what money is and there's references to scotty buying a boat there's scotty there's references to um you know credits being paid at cork's bar there's you know references in uh, tos of you know you know salaries and kind of rank salary with, associated with rank obviously you see it in lower decks and now picard where there is a class differential in starfleet and perhaps even with picard and raffi right is picard just inheriting all that wealth inheriting all that that prime property from his ancestors or do the workers of chateau picard do they get to elect picard to say hey <laughs> or do you, does he just or does he just get to have that because he's the last remaining picard right mm -hmm. and that is uh a good question. TBD, I don't know if they'll ever answer it, but it shows you all these really interesting, again, I'm using the word again, contradictions. And I think for me, it doesn't ruin Star Trek for me. It's not like a, something that I just completely negates the experience or kind of a deal breaker. That's the word, a deal breaker for me. I think you can kind of um, suss out uh, the contradictions and kind of and uh, try to make it work. But understanding that it's still limited in how it can tell this story. And I would say, you know, when there is a socialist revolution, that's why I have my politics is the way that they are. Like when um, intellectual property and when copyright law doesn't matter anymore, when we could just write Star Trek stories just because they're public domain, I don't have to worry about CBS Paramount coming down on my back. We can actually write 
I would say, exponentially better Star Trek stories or any type of story, not locked behind corporate intellectual property law or saying, hey, you got to make sure you pass it by the board directors or the, or the, uh, or the um, you know, the company, right? And I think in a lot of ways, uh, that's the, the true meaning of kind of opening up all these, uh, the new frontiers of, uh, of creativity is that everything is bound right now behind private property of, the, of mm-hmm. the ruling class and the capitalists. Even Star Trek itself, I can't write Star Trek on a fan film that's longer than 30 minutes because CBS owns the rights to Star Trek. But what if we could actually just tell all sorts of Star Trek stories regardless? And I think that's uh, well, a big reason why I'm a Marxist now and a socialist. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, I suppose fanfic is the realm. It, it, you know, there is a kind of democratization in that element. And, and Star Trek has always had that. I mean, it's the fanzines and the kind of slash uh, fiction writers, you know, who very much were pushing against, uh, you, you know, pushing in a direction that they knew was impossible on screen or kind of, you know, was kind of reading against the text to a certain extent. But having that freedom to do that um, was part of where the kind of fandom, I suppose, came from. I mean, I think there's an interesting tension in Star Trek that... Maybe one reason we want it all to make sense, or you know, some of us maybe want it, or, or there, maybe the reason there's an impulse to make it, to want it to make sense, if that makes sense, is that unlike other t- long-running entertainment franchises, Star Trek has really pushed this sort of um, consistency button. I mean, A, there is a lot of... OK, there are, there are discrepancies in canon, but there is also an awful lot of um, coherence. B, there are all these books, you know, you can buy the technical manual of the Next Generation Enterprise, which is written in such a way as to make it appear that the science all makes sense, that all of these things are possible, that there's a kind of a a very coherent, rational, uh, there's a system at play and you can actually understand it. Um, Though, of course, it relies on things like uncertainty compensators, which are kind of nonsense on one level do you know what i mean like there's this kind of magic there's a magic in the gaps for the sake of storytelling but i feel like on these kind of issues star trek has always tended towards uh, we we don't talk about it you know like they had that line in ds9 about the klingons oh yeah we don't talk about that you, you know these these kind of thorny areas are just sidestepped no one i mean obviously manu wrote trekonomics which is a fascinating book but cbs are never going to put out an economic manual for the Federation. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In the same way as they'll put out a technical manual for the Enterprise. Um, and even going back to, um, I mean, Manu and I talked about this because he mentions in his book, this memo when the original series was on the air and they said, basically, we will never explicitly say what the outcome of the Cold War was. Do you know what I mean? We'll, we'll never say whether communism or capitalism was ultimately successful uh, in the 20th century or whatever um so 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 that's a kind of which is a big issue because obviously that was going on at the time you can understand why they said that um but that kind of basic uh position of yeah we don't talk about those questions (laughs) these these questions are too big these questions are too complicated we're not really going to go there i feel like that in some ways is why there's this degree of ambiguity in star trek is because almost consistently it sort of avoids too much clarity so you have these sort of moments where there's there's a little bit more focus placed on these issues, usually where there's a contrast with, you know, someone in the past or someone from a different society or something like that. And there's a kind of a contrast being drawn. So you, you get Lily in first contact saying, what do you mean you don't get paid? And she can't believe it, you know. But for the most part, we sort of don't really want to 
go with that. We need to find other. We need to find ways to sort of tell those stories, but divert attention. So Quark is a great way of diverting. You, you know, sort of putting all that stuff on Quark, and we don't really have to find out too much about what Cisco or, or whoever thinks. That there is an interesting question in that episode. I think that. O'Brien and Bashir are very much on the side of the unions. They're very much, and, and O'Brien, we understand it because I think O'Brien, in as much as there is any kind of class coding in Star Trek, O'Brien is coded as a kind of working class character, um, and we see that right from the, you know, from Next Gen, where he's kind of he's just the guy in the transporter room. He seems to have, a, and he talks about in this episode how bored he was on the Enterprise that he had this kind of boring job, and obviously in DS9 he has a much more more responsibility, a much more kind of central job and so on but I think something about partly the way that Colmini plays that character maybe the fact that he's not an officer kind of plays into that as well so again there's that kind of lower dexy element there Bashir quite different but Bashir again seems very much on the side he's the guy who suggests a union in the first place so there's the two of them sort of watching the strike and uh very much supporting the strike and then you have Worf who appears to be going to break the strike and they have this big row about it. Now, that's a kind of interesting question, I think, because what is that about? And we have Odo also saying he doesn't believe in all this kind of labour organising or whatever. And you again, you can kind of understand that with Odo because Odo has some slightly sketchy politics in a number of ways, I think, that kind of tie back to the Great Link and the founders and this obsession with order and all these sorts of things. But I don't know, that just struck me as interesting that, you know, Worf is, after all, a Starfleet officer. He has been brought up on Earth. He has presumably studied the same history, largely, that Bashir and O'Brien have. Why are they coming to blows over this issue? Or is it just that someone had to disagree with them to kind of get a bit of drama out of it and get the sense that these are not totally uncontroversial? Even, I mean, it's interesting, even from the point of view of the evolved humans or, you know, and other species of Starfleet, the evolved people of Starfleet, that this is not totally a dead issue. It's a great point, right? You know, is Warp a scab? You know, does yeah. it cross the picket line? Uh, you know, and it is very funny because it, like I said, you know, it is, if someone said to me that, hey, we're going to write an episode about uh, a strike on a Star Trek episode, we're going to make Worf a scab. It might seem a little heavy-handed. How are you going to do this in a way that that doesn't uh, betray a character? Doesn't you know? Doesn't seem in a way forced, if you will, but still be able to tell a story that actually has some conflict to it. And they actually come to physical blows with it, uh, with yeah. each other about it, which is very true about what would happen on a picket line with workers if they do cross a line, uh, if they're on strike, that kind of stuff. So it's amazing how they're able to actually do that write it in a way to still illustrate these kind of challenges um, and conflicts. But then how do you reconcile within, quote-unquote, in-universe, in canon, right? If, if, how does Worf, this, do they not take, um, you know, history at Starfleet Academy where they learn labor struggle history, that the Haymarket, you know, struggles and, and, and all of those types of things? Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, this where being a, a fan is fun, right? One could say, okay, perhaps he grew up on Earth and learned Earth history, but maybe he still bought into the Klingon uh, mode of production. And my analysis of the Klingon mode of production is actually a feudal system, right? They still have houses. They still have, uh, I would argue, a very much uh, a class structure, especially uh, how Martok resents Core because mm-hmm. he was of a lower caste. So very much almost kind of what it's alluded to in Game of Thrones, right? It's a feudal system with, with you know, these distinguished houses owning land and you work the land and you're honor-bound, much like the early peasantry on Earth, right? Have they developed to... That next stage, right? Have, is there a Klingon form of bourgeois capitalism yet, right? Is there a Klingon form of bourgeois socialism yet? Not yet, right? It's still stuck in this idea that 
there are these grand noble houses, right? Um, and, you know, maybe they don't have an idea of collective action yet, or it hasn't developed or permeated yet uh, within that level, right? Instead of peasants having some sort of solidarity with each other, it's, it's peasants having solidarity to their lord, right? You know, Dura sisters or, you know, Galron, what have you, right? Perhaps that's what's influencing Worf. But of course, those are all the fun stuff, you know, you, you come up with these elaborate uh, um, explanations, which kind of makes sense, actually, using the evidence that's there to explain, like, yeah, why would Worf, a lieutenant commander, cross the line? You would think he would actually know those types of things. Um, mm-hmm. And also then getting into a scuffle with, you know, chief medical officer and, and the chief of operations over it. It is very, it's very amusing in that way because they almost operate in a way that would be like us in the 20th century at that time, the 21st century now. Uh, they're supposedly beyond this, right? They're supposedly beyond all this type of stuff, and yet they actually, in a way, they've almost forgotten a lot of that history that's happened. It's almost like they got it so good, or things have progressed beyond that need, they kind of forgot the struggle behind it, right? Maybe they, they don't understand the importance of that. And I think um, I think all of those aspects are very interesting to think about because it's a good question. What if, what if there's a strike <laughs> on a Starfleet ship? And that I actually had never even thought of it until you mentioned it today, Duncan, about, yeah, what if the lower decks went on strike? And how would you resolve that strike if you couldn't talk it through, right? If you couldn't talk it through, resolve it. Would Starfleet send Starfleet security to make them go back to work? There's an episode of Battlestar Galactica where that exactly happens, where Adama sends in his uh, his troops to make um, uh, Chief Tyrrell basically break that strike. And it's a very dystopian view because it's very repressive, right? And you're kind of like, wow. Mm-hmm. Hope that never happens in Star Trek. How could that ever happen in Star Trek? And yet, unless we actually have a definitive answer how they do it, it the question is posed, how would they resolve it, right? And the, my argument would be the only way to resolve this in a way that's actually true to Star Trek ethos is actually if the working class and the, the all of the lower decks of the ships were the ones actually truly calling the shots. Because if it's not, if they are dependent upon kind of that bureaucracy of senior staff, the, the bad multi, if you will, all those bad admirals, even Section 31, then... At some point, there will be a reckoning. At some point, there will be a conflict between the two. And I think, just to go on a bit of a tangent, I think that's why I like Picard so much. Because I think that's what Picard's trying to do, right? In season one to say, you know what? This is not the Federation that we knew. Picard says as much, right? It is not Starfleet, right? And people, that was very jarring for lots of people. And I think they're going to build up to that. But I think that's why I like it so much because it actually begins to answer what we've always known along is that there's a conflict here that's not resolved. They just kind of brush it aside. And it starts with so many previous episodes. Like, insurrection is all about that, right? We kind of ignore the fact that the Federation Council was the one that authorized the Baku relocation. It wasn't Section 31, and it yeah. wasn't some bad admiral. They actually were going to do it. The Federation Council decided to do this bad thing. That implies a huge corruption, huge rot at the center of Starfleet. So, in a way, Picard is finally just kind of I would say at least squaring up a little bit or being honest a little bit about, yeah, it actually has never really been as utopian as it's been portrayed. But that doesn't mean it's a complete lost cause. That doesn't mean there's no hope to be had at all. In fact, there's a lot of hope to be given from that because that's actually how progress is made in society, is through struggle, right? Through combined and uneven development of these things. It's how you actually, you know, achieve... um, uh, I would say transformation in society, social transformation society, I would even say, is that you have to actually go through these these processes and they're historical processes of, of struggle and conflict. And I think that's why I think Picard, for me, I like it a lot. 
but I hear a lot of people saying, "Hey, it's too dark." But I think for a lot of them, they're not they're not really seeing where that's always kind of been the case in Star Trek. And I guess also in Picard with the whole synth ban and so on, there's the potential to go into. I mean, in season two, I know there were talks of Robert Picardo maybe coming into Picard, and I think that would be quite interesting because one of the elements, uh, one of the episodes where Star Trek does sort of tap into this idea of exploitation by the Federation, I mean, obviously the Baku are being exploited by the Federation. For the most part, I feel like Star Trek really uh, tries to step back from sort of colonial exploitation on the part of the Federation, which would be a very easy... It wouldn't be surprising if there was an element of that going on, but they, they, they're very key. I guess with the Prime Directive and so on, there's a kind of real effort to say, uh, to kind of keep our hands clean from that point of view. But I think when it comes to artificial life forms, that's where they can kind of explore those a little bit. So obviously you had in Measure of a Man, you had the, the threat of, you know, a race of datas uh, and the kind of the idea of slavery being invoked as a kind of uh way of seeing what what that might involve and we and there were other episodes about um you know the exocomps treating exocomps and so on because they're kind of exploiting these non-human or non-organic beings and then in voyager you have this kind of whole thing with the holograms and you get you get exactly basically the nightmare scenario of uh measure of a man with the race of datas with this race of of the doctor basically copies endless copies of the doctor being put to do this manual labor um which again is something that we don't generally see in the original series we see people mining we see that kind of thing there, we do see miners i guess in next gen because there's in the perfect mate there's those miners who are kind of like lusting over um kamala on there but it's interesting that so we see this sort of tease of this quite shocking i think image of you know all these copies of the doctor basically being put to do this work kind of against their will it seems and and their consciousness is being raised by the doctor's awful hollow novel that is kind of you know despite being uh, pretty trashy is, is somehow kind of you know getting something through to them but we never really find out how that story resolves itself but it kind of struck me with picard you know obviously there are holograms around rios has holograms and so on but you know with this whole synth ban what's the fallout there for holographic rights and holographic issues you know all the kind of stuff that the doctor in the delta quadrant can kind of go through this journey and kind of come out of it with more rights and kind of more respect and so on but once he gets back to the alpha quadrant where versions of him are being you know openly exploited where do those kind of storylines go so i suppose these are other ways that star trek you could say is almost can touch on some of these kind of themes but typically you know, this being Star Trek allegorically, one way or another, you, you know, we get, as you say, there's a class structure in Klingon society. Uh, we get, you know, class issues in the past. We get these issues with other species. We get them with other inorganic entities. You know, we get all, the, all these ways. And this is what Star Trek has always done, of you know, exploring some of these issues, but slightly indirectly. But I think that is one that, I would be interested to see whether Picard picks up on that, especially now that Picard himself is a synth. And what does that mean? And what are the kind of implications of that in terms of, you know, going all the way back to Measure of a Man, you know, individual rights and the kind of right to not be... I mean, you know, it is a sort of what they want to do with data is a kind of form of exploitation in a sense, even if it's not him that's ultimately going to be, you know, whatever it is, being sent into battle as one of endless android clones or whatever you, you know whatever it, whatever the kind of nightmare scenario is that it's imagining um 
he, he is very much against his will going to be put to that end. And and these are, some, I think, some of the darker, the darker sides of the Federation that, as you say, in Insurrection, we see another side of it, but it's all off screen and we don't really get it. And I mean, if you read Michael Piller's book, his original vision for Insurrection, there were, you know, we were going to see the Senate, we were going to have Ian McKellen as a Vulcan or something, you know, debating with Picard, we were going to have the kind of politics um, and the, the kind of, and instead we just get that one badmiral who sort of stands in for all of that. And you're right, I think it's tricky because we don't, even though explicitly you're right it is saying the federation council sanctioned this this is not just a bad egg it feels very much like the story of one bad egg because they're in the middle of nowhere and they can't get messages in and out and it's all quite kind of it's all just pinned on this one guy and we never see the fallout beyond that but i suppose these are these kind of questions and, and because a lot of us we do love star trek partly because it's kind of utopian and the federation seems like a wonderful place and we kind of want to go and live there and so on and yet there's also this element of often the writers of Star Trek do want to go down these dark routes. There is this endless fascination with Section 31. I mean, I've never been that wild about Section 31 personally, but the fact is I'm obviously in the minority because they keep coming back to Section 31. Now we're going to get a whole Section 31 series. This is something that people are completely fascinated with. Um, And I suppose I can accept the argument that it's more some of these things are more realistic, that maybe it was unrealistic to not have Section 31, and now we have to have it, whether we like it or not. But, you know, these are the kind of elements that, that we don't want to... It, it, does Star Trek only seem so great because we've been... Because Star Trek and us as viewers have been deliberately not asking certain kind of obvious questions? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a really great question. I think actually I would... I would you can count me as a person who's not thrilled by Section 31 uh, as well. Uh, it's one of those things where... It, I would argue it's diminishing returns. Every time you use it, it has less of, an oomph, less of an impact, much like the board, right? Every time you see them, they're a little less frightening, right? Because the very first time you saw them, they were incredibly terrifying. Much like Section 31, the very first time, the very first Inquisition episode is the best Section 31 with Sloan and Bashir. It's wonderful. One of the, you know, I love um, uh, Jerry Sadler. He's so good in that role. And then the, the interplay between him and Bashir, fantastic. Uh, but it is one of those things I almost call this the wrath of Khan syndrome, meaning something is so successful, they're going to be like, you know what, let's keep doing it, right? So wrath of Khan was so good. Let's do it again, like three more times, right? Section 31 was great. Let's do it five more times. Let's have a series about it, right? And it is one of those things, like, in a way, to bring it back to, to, to class again, it is a capitalist motive, right? CBS needs to pump out some material. Hey, it's popular with the fans. Put some more stuff out there. They like that kind of stuff. And I think um, that is... Which is not to say that you can't tell a good story about Section 31 uh, and how that can, um, you know, I think going back to what I said about how can you reconcile these contradictions, right? It actually, yeah, you have to fundamentally say that utopia in of itself is an idealistic construct. But that doesn't mean that what the Federation exists as isn't a huge progressive step forward uh, for humanity specifically, but also for many of the worlds that the Federation represents, right? To, to achieve all those things are still a massive step forward. Um, but there are all these other things that are there, and I think you're exactly right. You are on the mark where it says Star Trek does seem a little greater if you avoid all these tougher questions, but it can't be Star Trek if it actually delves into this kind of stuff because it's very much a product of being a TV show, being a franchise, like a Star Wars, where it has to kind of keep kind of um, those bold, not bold, um, those familiar um, guideposts, right? That's why all Federation ships, for the most part, still look have, have a saucer, 
us tune the cells. Sometimes you can't break that formula too much, right? They have to kind of go back to what it is. And I think there's a tension there that is good. Sometimes you don't want to break it too much, right? But at the same time, you do need to push against it a little bit, right? And I think that's interplay that makes Deep Space Nine particularly really good. It kind of pushes back and forth really well. And the idea of Section 31 is just the idea of, you know, one could say that, you know, it, it is, it can, it, my personal explanation for Section 31, why it continues to exist is because it um, it's existed because the Federation, ever since its formation, has been in a state of crisis, really. And, and that state of crisis has allowed for uh, bureaucracy and has allowed for an argument to be made that we need something to to defend uh, the gains of, I'm going to use Marxist quote, the gains of the revolution, much like uh, war communism with Lenin when it was under civil war uh, right after the formation of the Soviet Union, where they had to actually take uh, very uh, strict measures to defend the gains from being attacked from all sides. One could say ever since the formation of the Federation, it's the Earth-Romulan War, you have the Klingon War and Discovery, then you have like the Klingon Cold War that lasts until Kittimer, then you have the Cardassian border wars, which split Sarek and Spock, they argue, in between father and son. Then you have the Borg. Then you have the Dominion. Then you have all this other stuff, right? And, and now with Picard, they have the Romulan uh, supernova situation. One could say it's like, you know, crisis after crisis after crisis. You don't see it all the time in a Star Trek series because Next Gen is either exploring space, bearing uh, diplomats from one planet to another planet, or Voyager, they're in Delta Quadrant, or Deep Space Nine, they're in the far off. Um, outpost, but there are these crises that kind of go from one place, uh, the, one crisis to another crisis, and it, I think it allows an argument to be made, hey, we need to have some sort of protective force. But of course, that is a, it, it's, it's to maintain that illusion, much like in bourgeois democracy, right? You have to kind of couch it in terms that makes it powerful to the rest of the Federation citizenry, make it secret. Um, and I think the best way, and this is something that will never happen, but the best way to reconcile uh, Section 31 is to say that uh, understand why conflict exists as uh, in the first place, right? As a Marxist, conflict exists because differing class interests. That's why conflict resolves. That's what war is, right? War is the, the ruling classes fighting against each other and using the workers that you know, kill each other for it. And Section 31 represents that. And my argument is you want to get rid of Section 31, you want to get rid of the argument that, hey, you know, we need to protect the Federation. The argument is you need to actually expand the revolution to include the Klingons, to include the Romulans, to include the Ferengi, to include the Cardassians. Almost to say, what if the, the working class of the Federation found solidarity with the working class of Ferenginar, the working class of, the, of Kronos, the working class of Romulus doesn't exist anymore, but the Romulans, the Cardassians, right? And realize all of their governments actually may not have all of their best interests at heart. Perhaps a new federation that expands beyond just the 150 planets. It includes our old adversaries like the Klingons and, and the Romulans and, you know, the Dominion, right? You know, what will happen to the Jem'Hadar after, after the war, right? What if that was the real Star Trek, right? Is that, you know, a new federation? Who's to say what section, I mean, who's to say what sec, uh, season three of Discovery is going to be? It seems it's alluding towards a fall of the Federation, right? It alludes to a much darker uh, world, but, you know, Michael Burnham is bringing that hope, right? It is interesting in the 31st century, what is the Federation at that point? But it is something I think is very, Star Trek will never actually, I think, fully embrace that because it is too different. It, it breaks the mold too much because 
Star Trek still needs the, the Klingons as a, uh, as a familiar kind of friendly foe. You need the Romulans, you need the Borg, you need something. And in order for CBS to continue to produce that type of commercial product, they kind of need those familiar touchstones still. They really can't actually take Star Trek to its logical conclusion of saying, actually, we need to spread you know, a galactic socialist revolution to all, all, uh, all worlds, right? To say, workers of all worlds unite. And, you know, who's to, in my head, Ken, who's to say that Rom doesn't inspire a new movement, right? The Romulists in the 24th century saying, hey, you know what? We're all oppressed, no matter which planet we're from, no matter which border we're from, we're all the same, right? And I think that is the really cool part about Star Trek is that all those pieces are there to be played with. But, of course, it's, it's constructed in a way that doesn't quite answer all of it. But it is so interesting that you can kind of almost piecemeal it together because that's what Star Trek does. It poses these questions but doesn't fully answer them. But that's where, for me, that's where Marxism comes in. Like we can answer all these questions. Uh, but Section 31 is, I'm, I'm in your boat. It is something that should really not be used as much <laughs> as it's used. I love the idea of Romulanism as being the kind of political force that's going to unite the galaxy in, in Star Trek. And who knows? I mean, I mean, it's interesting what you were talking about there. And I suppose a lot of what we've been talking about is what are the questions that aren't asked? What are the kind of areas of um, ambiguity or, or, or kind of the things that are skimmed over? And what you're talking about there, a lot of it is sort of the reading between the lines or the kind of resistant reading or the sort of, uh, you know, filling in the gaps in, in your own particular way. I mean, I'm kind of curious, your politics have changed since you started watching Star Trek, right, originally. I'm interested, first of all, I guess, how did how did Star Trek change for you with your own uh, developing political ideas um, and was there any sense in which Star Trek itself sort of fed into that at all? And also, obviously, you do. I mean, a lot of our listeners will have seen you on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You do a lot to kind of unite these two interests in a sense, you, you know, Star Trek and socialism. And presumably the goal is that the Star Trek fans will get more interested in socialism and maybe the socialists will get more interested in Star Trek. You're kind of evangelizing for both sides, but but by occupying that space and using those two identities. So I'm sort of curious, where did that come about for you? And, and to the two, you seem to manage to merge the two quite successfully uh, in a way, in a, in a way that is productive. I, I think, uh, well, I appreciate that, Duck. And I think it, it was just, it happened, I think, naturally. I think, I think with lots of people, it just kind of happens um, as they experience events. I think in a lot of ways um, we experience our own, how we experience life is actually one of the biggest teachers and all these types of things. Um, so just under so my own political uh, evolution, uh, I think tracks a lot of people uh, in my generation, but also just in society in general. It's not just a generational thing, society in general. I, ever since, since 2016, I was a big Bernie Sanders fan, right? He was talking about mm -hmm. taking on the billionaire class, taking on uh, having a political revolution, talking about all these types of things. It did resonate with me. But then over since uh, that period of time, I would say, you know, four years, five years is actually a lifetime uh, in experiences that you can attain. And there's a great quote by, by Lenin where he says, there are weeks, uh, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen, which means that consciousness is not static but it can actually grow by leaps and bounds. But there are periods of time when consciousness, you know, is at a lower tempo. And there are other periods of time when consciousness grows by leaps and bounds. And I think 
what you've seen from, I would say, 2016, but even earlier than that, going back to Occupy Wall Street, going to Ferguson in 2015 with the Black Lives, with the first Black Lives Matter, going through the, uh, what happened with Bernie twice now, right? The fact that he lost uh, and capitulated both times, right, to the Democratic Party, kind of endorsing the quote-unquote lesser evil option, seeing the crisis of COVID-19, seeing the George Floyd protests emerge yet again uh, with Black Lives Matter taking it forefront, but taking on a much more militant edge this time, talking about abolishing the police, no longer police body cameras being necessary, and understanding all through all of this, the, the imminent struggle of climate change, right, where it seems that uh, despite all of the best intentions of uh, Justin Trudeau or uh, Barack Obama about these climate targets, yet we still are seeing uh, dramatic changes in the climate with no end in sight. So what is good? What is the good of the, the Paris Accords? What is the good of these protocols if we actually can't hold uh, companies and capitalists accountable for that? All this type of stuff is is milling about uh, on a generation, millennials and Zoomers, if you will, that have really um, not great job prospects, right? Working gig jobs, right? They have to piece together two or three jobs. Rent is astronomical. Um, all those types of things. So it's in that background where I think consciousness can suddenly change to say, you know what, perhaps it's it's not a question about um, who we elect, right? There was a big push towards representation. And I think in a lot of ways representation does matter, but it matters what type of representation. Uh, is it uh, electing someone who looks like us? So Barack Obama being the first black president uh, or electing a woman president, Hillary Clinton, uh, or you know now Kamala Harris as the first black president. Uh, vice president, black woman, vice presidential candidate. Is that a type of representation we actually need to solve these problems? Or is it the actual representation of the working class and the working class interests in society? Those are the ones that actually need to be represented. And we're seeing that actually they don't, we don't have representatives that serve in our interests. We need to have our own political party, own political program. And seeing Star Trek kind of talk about these, these ideas, um, initially, it was very, uh, it was a touch point for me. I know thinking about, hey, you know, a, a racially uh, diverse a crew of intelligent people who are capable, that's that's inherently pretty radical. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, 80s, it still is, right? But in a lot of ways, it was very reassuring to watch Next Generation where they say, hey, man, they, they, they've got it figured out, right? The car doesn't pay Worf a salary. They don't, you know, evict them if they don't perform their duties. Beverly Crusher doesn't charge a copay to get hypospray, right? You don't have to spend thousands of dollars. She just does it for you, right? It's, it's beautiful, right? And that in and of itself, that almost radical normality, right, uh, was a big stepping stone towards kind of understanding, okay, so what? why can't we get there? It seems so self-evident. It's in this TV show that, someone see, that everyone seemingly likes to like, right? I mean, why can't we just do that, right? And suddenly not being able to explain all this, uh, that contradiction and obviously all these other factors that that came into play started to kind of radicalize my politics right started me getting to, to looking into socialism and communism and marxism all these ideas learning that uh, there's a history of struggle it's one class struggle it's been one continuous class struggle because uh the working class is yet to be successful in its final form right they we've actually yet to fully liberate ourselves so that's why we still have all of these problems right that are seemingly uh intractable but in reality they're not really right and what's the thing that's standing in the way? Then you have to understand what, you know, for me, personally speaking, what is, you have to give the system a name. You have to give the system a name. And uh, and the name of that is capitalism, right? It has a 
it has a logic, it has a reason, right? The, the private ownership of the means of production. And because of that, they can command people to work, work for a wage and then, you know, trap them in that kind of wage slavery, right? To, to, to live hand, hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're not worried about thinking about a better world. You're not worried about thinking about other things. You're worried about paying your bills and all that sort of stuff. And that end of itself is a prison. But as you can see, all these events are happening because that prison, that contradiction can't be contained anymore, right? It, it, and COVID is a great example of how it's exploiting, exposing all the contradictions. And the Black Lives Matter movement, especially so, like exploiting what the real nature of the police is. And with Star Trek, I love Star Trek because it, it poses the question that some people say, well, we can only get to Star Trek because they got replicators. They can they have warp drive, they warp drive. They can beam people. We can't have socialism. We can't have communism unless we have replicators. People are too greedy, right? People are too self-interested. Not possible. And for me, uh, I love hearing that argument because it's so patently false and it's so easily uh, disproven. But it's a great launching point for me to explain politics to someone because I would say to you, to, uh, to anyone here, we've actually already achieved post-scarcity. We don't need replicators. Right? We don't need that. We have 3D printers. We have we have mastered agricultural technique. We have mastered all of the uh, ingenuity of of technology and production. Uh, it's actually not that technologically difficult to make sure everyone has a roof over their head, everyone's fed three meals a day, and everyone has mental, uh, medical, dental care provided for them. No one has to die of exposure, starvation, thirst. You know, it's actually not that hard, right? Not that hard to do all those things. So why can't we? do it right because there's that fetter that fetter that still remains in society which is private property right so that's why you have this perverse contradiction where people will throw away food or destroy excess produce and crops because it's not profitable to sell at a below a certain market rate you saw that with covid after the drop in consumer demand you had farmers breaking eggs dumping milk because they couldn't they, you know they couldn't sell it anymore so they would much rather actually destroy it lower the supply to bring up the price and just give it away. Meanwhile, you have the perverse sight of people you know, literally dying of hunger in, quote-unquote, the most advanced capitalist country in the world, the United States, right? You often talk about, you know, in communism, you used to wait in bread lines, and in March, you're waiting for toilet paper, right? In, in, in the advanced capitalist countries, right? It was a complete, complete shakeup of the confidence of capitalism to provide the basic goods that used to accuse communism of not being able to provide, you know, toilet paper, right? There was a rush on all this type of stuff, and it shows you that's the, the all of the contradictions are brought up to, to the fore, and it says, okay, you know, is it a technological question, right, or is it a political question? So, for, I think for me, Star Trek kind of helped answer that question. Is like to get to that Star Trek world, it's not we need to invent the, the replicator; we need to actually have a political struggle. But of course, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Star Trek never really gets into that. But for me, that's where the politics then kind of takes over for me and i get to explain to people like yeah you want that star trek world that we see here right then this is what we need to do here right these are the things we need to do to fight for these types of things and you know i think star trek is a great launching off point because people gravitate towards that. i think that's why next generation has aged so tremendously well is um it's it's that aesthetic of being able to kind of live a decent life a decent life uh, uh, that's free from the burdens of wage slavery, right? the burdens of just kind of, I got to work a nine to five, five days a week, 
only two days of rest, right? They they don't have that pressure, right? They don't have the alienation that people get from work that's not meaningful, right? You know, punching widgets at some, you know, pushing paper at a job. They're actually exploring. They're exploring the stars. They're capable. They actually have enough time on top of that to learn dead alien languages, learn instruments, you know, have hobbies, have filled lives. And that's what socialism and communism is about is saying that why don't we have the ability to take control of our lives? Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, I think Star Trek cause, uh, provides a really good example of saying we actually can do so much of the work in society without actually having to work as much as we do, right? Why don't, you know, uh, in Star Trek, you have automation, right? You have the, 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 the technological systems kind of make a lot of the, the mundane work um, no longer as needed, right? That can be actually applied nowadays to uh, society, right? There's no reason why we actually have to work 40 plus hours uh, a week, each week, really, to produce what we need to actually produce and survive as a society. We only work as much because that's the that's the only way capitalists can make the profit, is to increase the rate of exploitation on the surplus value of labor that's generated by the workers, right? You actually can work less, right? And, uh, you know, why can't we actually work 20 hours a week but get paid 40 hours for 40 hours work, right? Why do we only have two days of a weekend as opposed to more? Whoever decided that it was only going to be five days of work two days of, 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 of a weekend, right? All those types of things didn't come from the sky, didn't come out of nowhere. It came through struggle, right? If it wasn't through struggle, we would be working seven days a week with child labor, right? But a, an organized struggle made it possible to get in two days. But why don't we actually only work two or three days? Uh, it's because we actually don't control society. Automation means, under the capitalist control, automation means uh, you're going to be out of a job. You're not going to have your livelihood. A robot's going to take your job and you're going to lose your ability to feed your family. When it's under socialism and building towards a communist society, automation should liberate us. It should actually make us actually uh, work less but more productively and actually free us to actually do so much more in society. We can do so much more with art or music or literature or science, right? We don't have to to, to be slaves uh, living uh, hand to mouth just to, to eke out an existence because automation now serves interests of humanity as opposed to saying hey that robot's going to take my job so i'm going to uh hate automation so i think that's the the reason why i use star trek as an example to say we're already there capitalism has already outlived its usefulness we can do all of these things and so much more why can't we do it well the question is who's in power and who's not in power and we have to pose that question that's why i think the you can blend the two in a way that you can get marxists to watch star trek and star trek to talk about marxism in a way that naturally kind of flows together and I think meshes with, I think, a lot of people's own personal experiences because I think what I went through is what a lot of people went through, just seeing the constant inability for our leaders or leadership or the system as currently constructed to, to, to answer and fulfill the most basic outcomes, right? These are the most basic outcomes everyone says we should have. We're all in this together, right? At the start of the pandemic, in about three months, not so much, right? Why is that, right? And I think um, for a lot of people, uh, it's resonating for, for people to, s- to truly see whose side are, are they're on, whose side the capitalists are. Well, Will, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. It's been great having you on the show. Um, before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you online if they want to carry on the conversation um, or if there's uh, any other stuff that you've been working on that you'd like to draw their attention towards. Uh, sure. Yeah. So you can actually find me uh, on Twitter at Boomer Niner. Uh, my uh, tagline is actually the Star Trek communist. So you can find me pretty easily. 
Um, I do a lot of work with my own political organization called the International Marxist Tendency. Uh, we're active in over 30 countries. We're trying to build an organization of, of communists worldwide to fight that class struggle on a worldwide basis. We're actually in the UK as well as Socialist Appeal. In the UK, in the US, we're Socialist Revolution. So check us out at Marxist.com or SocialRevolution.org or Socialist.net in the UK. Uh, and also, I also love talking Star Trek too. So any one of those things. I'm always down to talk. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. You're blended already.